Welcome to Grave to Great. I'm your host, Tracy Wood, and this is our weekly podcast where we discuss end-of-life issues, hospice care, and implications for families and their caregivers. Let's get into the show. Hi, welcome to Grave to Great. We have Erica Legenza with us today. Welcome, Erica. Hey, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. We are so excited to have this opportunity to talk with you today. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your blog, Coming Up Roses, and your podcast, Thrive? Absolutely. So, hi, I'm Erica. I run the blog called Coming Up Roses, which is comingupbrosestheblog.com. Um, and that is just kind of like a fun lifestyle blog that I started back when I was in college that was basically like an inspirational sort of journaling hub for me at the time. And then it evolved into a little bit of style and beauty and travel and mom stuff and has just evolved with me as I've grown up um, to what it is today. And now it's my full-time job. So I do that. And then I have the Thrive podcast. Uh, which the whole mission behind Thrive is really just to help women go from a life of simply surviving to thriving. And I started that as the mom, as a new mom, where I found myself in a season of barely surviving. And I basically had like a come to Jesus moment where I realized that a lot of that was kind of my own fault. And it was a really hard realization at the time. But I realized that I was kind of wallowing in this space of just surviving when there were kind of clear intentional choices and decisions that I could be making in my own life to change the things that I wanted changed and to go from feeling kind of awful, like I was just in survival mode to feeling like I was thriving again. And like I was going back to, you know, living what felt more like my best self. So I started the podcast as a way to have inspiring conversations and interviews and talk with other people who have made similar sorts of transitions and have a similar sense of intentionality in their life in the hopes of just helping other women who might find themselves in the same same kind of spot that I was. Oh, that's interesting. You know, here on Grave to Great, we talk about hard things in life and i.e. the grave part. And those things can shape us into better people and make us great. And we spent time talking with caregivers, healthcare providers, and grief counselors about death and the end of life. But today, we're stepping away from that, and we're going to start talking at the beginning. I want to talk about the beginning with you of your birth of your daughter, Olivia. You Mm -hmm. shared your birth story on your blog, part one and part two. But can you share with our listeners about what it's like... um, going from a baby due in December to finding out you have severe preeclampsia in October. Oh, yeah. (laughs) She's coming right up on her second birthday. So I've been thinking about it a lot lately. Um, Yeah. So I was supposed to have a baby in December, December of 2018. And I was lucky enough where my pregnancy was pretty smooth sailing. Mm -hmm. I did not, I didn't even have morning sickness. Like I thought... I thought I was kind of killing it on the pregnancy front (laughs) Um, and everything was seemed to be going pretty much as decently as it could have been going until around the 30 week mark. And I went in for my normal appointment and my ultrasound and the doctor just seemed a little bit concerned and he was doing all of the measurements and everything. And he just looked at me and he was like, you know, I think you're measuring a little small. I need to have you checked further. Mm -hmm. And that ended up starting 
the long line, that was kind of like the, the impetus of birth. It felt like, because for the next, the next couple of weeks then, oh man, the journey began. So I had to get checked again. And basically my blood pressure was continually rising from that point forward. And they realized that my placenta was deteriorating. So they basically told me that this was going to be a game of chance and timing where the goal was to keep to keep her in there as long as possible. But they knew that I was not going to make it to full term because they knew my placenta was not going to make it to full term. So at first it was, okay, we're going to try to get you to 34 weeks, but probably around 34 weeks, we're going to have to take her out because your placenta will be shot by then. They, I went in for the next week for my appointments and it became, okay, your blood pressure is really high. You're going to need to go on bed rest if this doesn't change. And we need you coming back for daily, for daily checkups in the maternal fetal medicine ward for your blood pressure. So I'm still thinking like, okay, I'll still get there. It'll be okay. Like it's a little high, whatever. It'll be okay. I go in for my appointment. It was around the 32 week mark. And well, 32 weeks, six days to be exact. Um, And I remember going in for that ultrasound and the tech wasn't really saying anything. She was like kind of, kind of quiet, which felt odd. And she left the room and she was gone for 45 minutes, which kind of felt like an eternity looking Mm -hmm. back. And I'm just sitting in this little (laughs) ultrasound room, like, hello, anybody remember I'm here? And I did not feel too hot at the time. I had driven myself to to the hospital that day. Um, and I, I remember feeling like almost like my vision was getting a little spotty, which looking back was extremely concerning. And thank God I was going to the hospital because uh, a, a hospitalist came in the room then. And he just sat down next to me and he, he said, Erica, I got to tell you something. You are a lot thicker than you feel. Uh, you're at extremely high risk right now of a stroke, a seizure, or both. And at this point, we're more concerned about your health than the baby's. If we wait, the baby might might be okay, but you might not be. Uh, he said, my, my blood pressure was 180 over 120, which is, you know, for anyone not in healthcare, that's a hypertensive crisis. <laughs> yes. So that, that's like, you're about to have a stroke. Right. So they said, we need to deliver the baby. And me, I guess, being like a type A Enneagram 3 planner, I was like, well, can we schedule this to tomorrow? (laughs) Like, can I call my family? Can we put this on the calendar? And uh, he said, no, we need to deliver today. We're doing it as soon as we can. As soon as an operating table opens up, you're going in. So, um, yeah, my husband had already left to go to go back to the office. So I had to call him and say, honey, can you come back? Cause we're having a baby today. <laughs> and his, his response to that was, can I call you back in 10 minutes? Cause I need to process this. I was like, Pro- you process this. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, they put me on magnesium sulfate, which is, oh gosh, it felt like being in being in limbo for the next 24 hours. It was like a horrible drug. They put me on just to keep my, to keep my level stable so that I wouldn't have a seizure while my blood pressure was as high as it was. Um, and then yeah, delivered, delivered Olivia at 2:34 PM on October 17th, which was, uh, nearly two months prematurely. So she was only three pounds, 0.1 ounces at birth. Um, but she was there and she was, 
so by the grace you... of God, is still alive today, yes. alive and so well. So yes. it was, it Such was a blessing. Such a blessing. Totally. So what were you feeling at Olivia's birth? Oh, my gosh. It was, honestly, I felt kind of bitter because mm. I felt like the normal joys of having a baby were robbed from me. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I felt I was so sick at that point than myself and I felt so loopy from the drug that I was on during my c-section they didn't I didn't get to hold her after having her like they took her out and they literally the NICU team came right in and got to work and I I, they got to wheel my bed into the NICU later to see her but I didn't have any of the sort of like normal moments that you think that you have when you're having a baby So I remember I was so happy to hear her cry when they took her out because I was like, well, at least she did that. I know that's good. But honestly, I was terrified because I knew that she was coming out not the way she was supposed to come out. And I knew that she wasn't going to look like a like what we think of as a normal baby. She wasn't going to be, you know, like this adorable, chunky little newborn. I I, in my head, I was like, she's coming out looking like an alien. (laughs) She's going to not look um, like how it's supposed to be in a healthy pregnancy. Right. So I was just really scared because I didn't know what was next for her and I didn't know what the journey was going to look like. And I was just really hoping that neither one of us would die. (laughs) So it was, it was like such a, such a mix of emotions. It's, it was crazy. I can't, I can't imagine. So, you know, your journey really, you had gotten through that part of your journey, but then you had the NICU journey. So what was that like? Tell us about your family experience while Olivia was in the NICU. Yeah, she, oh man, looking back, we thought the NICU was just going to be for a couple of days. You know, we thought it was going to be just until she was a little bit bigger, a little bit healthier and safer to come home. And then we thought that we would still have maybe a, a normal, I hate saying the word, I feel like I'm saying the word normal so much and like what is normal in birth or in kids. But I thought that we would have like this stereotypical newborn experience, um, even if we were in the NICU for a couple of days. So we started off in the NICU that she was born at, which we were so lucky was only five minutes from our house. Um, and it the days just kept going on. And there just were, it was one issue after the next. First, it would be her weight, which we, you know, we knew was pretty, pretty obvious and pretty, um, you know, expected, but it felt like it was a new thing every single day. And one of the bigger problems that she was having were what were called bradycardia episodes. So her heart rate would decelerate, her oxygen levels would desaturate, um, sometimes from to dangerously low numbers where it would require stimulation from nurses or doctors so that she wouldn't stop breathing. And then she was having feeding problems because, you know, when you're born at three pounds and you're only 32 weeks, you don't have the the reflexes yet. You haven't developed the reflexes yet to know how to eat the way that babies do when they come into the world. Um, and they were concerned about breathing issues. They had to give me a steroid shot in my butt before they <laughs> before giving birth so that for her lung development, because her lungs weren't fully developed before she was born. Yeah. So it was that was kind of like one tackling one issue after the other, which we kind of got in this rhythm of, you know, like it was weird, but it was only five minutes from our house. So I felt like I was just kind of living at the NICU and I would go and 
spend my time there. And then my husband would go to work at his job and then come back and join me at the hospital. And we would just kind of hang out. And it got, it got almost comfortable until it was a month into that Nikki's day, which feels like ugh, that was an eternity already looking back on it. Um, we were literally about two days away from when we were supposed to be going home uh, when they ended up finding what ended up being a really weird bacteria in in her that was called Campylobacter. And the doctors were stumped because this bacteria was something that is typically found in adults who've been handling raw poultry. So they were they were really scratching their heads on this because they were like, first of all, it's a bacterial strain that's basically never found in kids, let alone in newborns that have never left a clean, sterile NICU before. And since it comes predominantly from consuming undercooked chicken, they were like, uh, this is this shouldn't be here. Like, why is this here? It was like a five alarm fire in the NICU. So they ended up um, transferring her to a bigger, better NICU that was an hour and a half from our house. It was They transferred her to one of the best children's hospitals in the world. Um, and that, that day in and of itself was probably the hardest day of my husband's and my life so far because she was so sick. They had no idea what was wrong and why it was happening. They had no idea how to fix it. And they were just, it was like the most awkward, silent ambulance ride <laughs> to get to the next NICU because no one knew what was going on. And they, they were calling into the, to the greatest children's hospital in the world. And none of them knew, had heard of this before or knew what was going on. And I was just thinking like, oh my gosh, this can't be our story. Like, how is this innocent newborn baby have this random bacterial thing that no one knows how she got it? No one knows why it's there, how to fix it. And like, you're telling me we're going to the best place for her to get checked. And there's still question marks like this is this is not good. Yeah. So we were just scared. And we ended up in the second NICU. Um, and then it was still a lot of the same stuff. It was her blood test then came back negative for the bacteria, which was a blessing. But it was also really stressful because she was still having a lot of medical problems from it. She was still having these bradycardia episodes and the hospital had literally no idea why or how to fix it. So she ended up having two blood transfusions, a lot of antibiotics, a lot of IV fluids. Um, they never figured out actually what that was that got her transferred, which, you know, not not a great feeling. But um, they just kind of started treating all of the other stuff that she had. And it was it was just such a long journey where we were getting glimmers of hope here and there and then it would just be ripped away like we had at one point they told us that we would be approved for transfer back to the first NICU which we were like oh wow amazing to go from an hour and a half away to five minutes again this would be great and they told us that she was approved and then it was literally like 20 minutes later I got another call saying nope just kidding we need more tests here we can't transfer so it was a lot of bringing hope really high up, feeling then like it got crushed to the ground. And it was um, we needed to go five days without any of the bradycardia episodes for her to be allowed to come home. And she would get three days, even four days. And then she would have one episode and it would start the clock over. And it was it was so hard for us to watch because when she first started having these episodes, she was having 
a couple an hour. Like they were constantly happening. And when she got to the point where she was only having maybe one a day or one every three days to us, it was such a victory. And we were like, oh my gosh, like, praise God, this is, she's come so far. And then it would just have one little thing happen and it would start over. And it just felt like it was never enough. So, um, she ended up being in that second hospital for 33 more days. So before she got it, before she ended up going five days without any episodes and was able to come home. So it was a total of 73 days in the NICU. And um, yeah, she came home with a feeding tube. So she, we weren't totally out of the water, but um, yeah, it was 73 days. So it was the longest, oh my gosh, the longest, hardest and darkest period of our life. But and I bet you didn't sleep much once she got home either, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, she was ho- she was still hooked up to things because she was still hooked up to feeding tubes. So we thought we were out of the water and away from NICU monitors and the constantly beeping alarms and everything. But nope, we still had to get up every three hours to run the feeding tube. And it was just it was crazy. So we still felt like we were sort of experiencing normal newborn life, but also not at all, because it was also so, so foreign. So, um, how is Olivia doing now? Oh my God. (laughs) She's a miracle now, honestly. She's truly a miracle. She is so feisty. She is so full of joy. It is, it's incredible. She is so strong. Her pediatrician comments on her strength. She's like, the girl is like little wonder woman. Um, and she's great. Like she, she just had a bilateral eye surgery because her eyes were a little crooked, but that's pretty normal from, you know, preemies to have some eye issues here or there. Otherwise she doesn't have problems. Like she has, her skin's not the greatest. Okay. But like, oh my God, from what she started off at to where she is now, it is, I mean, it's, it's truly a miracle. Oh, that's such a blessing. I'm so glad she's doing well. So how, <laughs> how has your preeclampsia, Olivia's birth, Olivia's NICU stay, NICU stay, shape your family? I think we are just so much more cognizant and appreciative of every single little moment together. I think like we, we are just so tuned in to every little piece of joy that we can possibly pick up on. And I mean, having an almost two-year-old, I think in general helps with that because everything is such a wonder to them. So it, but knowing what she went through, I think we are just, we try to be so much more intentional about our time with her and being totally present and just bringing the fun in everyday life. And it's like, I hear people will say, oh, she's about to be in the terrible twos. And I'm like, no, I'm just thankful that she is about to turn two. Like, it's not terrible at all. I'm To me, I'm like, this is just so fun to be able to see life through her eyes and to just appreciate how far we've come. And the fact that we have our kid not in the hospital and home with us where we can snuggle like a family at the end of the night and there are no tubes attached to her and there's no you know wires or monitors or beeping things and our baby is like in her crib in our house with us at the end of the day is is such a blessing and I don't necessarily know if I would have been as aware of that had we not been through what we went through so it's really just like 
it was just the perspective shift and the the newfound appreciation that my husband and I have and our whole family has where, I mean, we really just soak up that every day is every day is a gift. So. Yes. So how has the experience shaped you as a person and how has it helped you go from grave to great? It really has just impacted my perspective on life in general, where this kind of goes to what I mentioned earlier about, you know, going from surviving to thriving. When we were in the NICU, oh my gosh, we were barely surviving. I felt like I was completely barely hanging on. I was such a hot mess, so emotional. I had all of my hormones running amok just from being postpartum. Right. But then I, and I had postpartum depression and I was just, I was miserable. Like I was just so sad and so bitter and just exhausted and then hormonally changing. It was just, it was just so sad. And it got to the point in the NICU where it was like, all right, I really have to come to grips with the fact that I have no idea when this is going to end. Like I know at some point, hypothetically, it's going to end. Like hypothetically, my kid's not going to live in the hospital for the rest of her life. So at some point, she's going to come home. But I had no idea when and I was getting it was becoming, I think, more hurtful than helpful to be tuning into all of the glimmers of hope that people would give us in terms of like, oh, maybe today's the day or maybe she'll come home soon. It was like I couldn't even rely on that because then it was an even bigger letdown when it didn't happen. So it became a really intentional effort of needing to acknowledge the pain and acknowledge how much it sucked and how much I wished it were different, but also accepting the fact that, okay, well, this is our story and God did this for a reason. And it's, I mean, he said in Romans eight twenty eight, works all things for our good. So I might not understand this and I might not like this and it might not be what I would have chosen, but somehow in some way there will be good that comes from this. And it might not be the way that I want it to be, but it will still happen. So I really just had to focus on finding the good in all of the little moments. For us, when we were in the NICU, my husband and I would just come home and watch any funny thing on Netflix that we could possibly find. We were like, we watched every comedy special, every funny series. We were like, we were so sad all the time. We needed to just turn off and laugh and just like, experience something happy (laughs) the emotion of happiness again since we just forgot what that felt like for for a while and that I think is like the intentional perspective shift and choice to find joy even in the hardest and saddest moments I think is something that will just forever be with me because through anything that we we face now as a family through any sort of like unforeseen circumstance or medical diagnosis or anything like that i think our our whole family's approach now is literally just where can we find joy here where can we find something happy because it's just otherwise the choice otherwise is just wallowing in misery and, yeah. and self-pity forever and it's just that doesn't do at some point that doesn't do any good for anyone so that's, I think that's like the biggest shift. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And it's a beautiful perspective to have on life. And, you know, that is how people get from grave to great is focusing on the positive. So thank you so much, Erica, for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. 
To keep up to date with our future episodes, head on over to GraveToGreat.com and be sure to give us a review of your favorite podcast app. We'll be back with a new episode next week. See you then.